0: 32. Psalm 32 as we continue in our mini-series here uh, in uh, Psalms of darkness and despair, something real cheery on a Sunday morning. Uh, but last week we looked at Psalm 13 and this idea of lament, crying out, how long, O Lord? And the pattern that that psalm gives us of bringing our complaints to God, of turning those complaints to prayers, and and submitting ourselves to the Lord, and then trusting, waiting on Him, uh, actively waiting on the Lord, and finding our trust renewed in Him. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 32, and the title of our passage is entitled, Self-Inflicted Suffering. So as you find your way there, it's page 462 in the Pew Bible. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truths that we just sang. In the midst of the ups and downs of life, the difficulties, the hardships, we can say, it is well with my soul. Why? Because Christ has regarded our helpless estate. Because our sin has been nailed to the cross. And because we look forward to your coming back to make things right. Lord, we can say, Christ is mine forevermore. That we will dwell with him and as we wait that day when we see him face to face, we know that you will keep us. You will guide us, you protect us, the hope of Psalm 121 for us as believers. Lord, that you will be with us and never forsake us. Help us now as we come to your word to be challenged and encouraged by it. Lord, I pray as we discuss sin and the effects of sin and the need for confession and repentance, Lord, that you would give us humility to receive this. We pray in your son's name. Please follow along as I read Psalm 32. A mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with a bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Have you ever said this phrase? It's nobody's, fault, it's nobody's fault but my own. Maybe you're thinking of an event in your life or a situation. When looking at it, you can say, it's my own fault. <laughs> I remember that time in my life when I realized that the consequences that I was enduring or that I might be suffering was the result of my own actions. And those actions were warned against by my parents. Don't do that. This is what's going to happen. Don't do this. That's what's going to happen. Watch out. And yet I did those things. And whose fault was it? My own. <laughs> Self-inflicted suffering. It happens more often than not, right? Uh, I, I still think from time to time is... I'm working on something and like, oh, I I, I don't think I should do that. Oh, I'm going to try. And then something breaks, right? Oh, it's my own fault. You're frustrated, but there's nobody to blame except for yourself. You should know better. There is no one to blame except ourselves. The consequences we are suffering for our choices and actions could have been avoided perhaps if we've listened to someone giving us encouragement or warning. As a dad, I do that often. Watch out, or this is going to happen. And then that happens, and they come crying and say, I told you so, it's your own fault. Right? Don't do that. On a practical level, these are things that we should learn from. The hard knocks of life. Actions and choices have consequences. Some big consequences, some small consequences. When I tell my children not to do something, and they do it and they get injured, I say, what is that? The natural consequence, natural punishment, you suffered your own stupidity right there. It's self-inflicted. But as we think of perhaps funny situations in our minds or perhaps even graver ones that have had impacts in our lives or the lives around us, on a spiritual level, this is all the more true. Suffering happens in our life, and sometimes suffering is not our fault. Suffering is is not our fault. You look at the book of Job, right? Job suffered so much, and everyone was saying, Job, you must have have committed some sort of sin or done something wrong to offend the Lord, but Job had not. And through the discussion with his friends, which they weren't really that helpful, (laughs) they're saying, Job, curse God and die. Or, you must have sinned, Job. Because you're enduring all the suffering. And the answer was no. Job didn't do anything wrong. It's suffering is, is part of being human. And there are things that happen in our lives where we suffer that are not a result of any action of our own. But then there are times in our life when we suffer because of our own actions, because of our own poor choices, because of our own sin. Not all suffering is because of sin. Some suffering is because of sin. And as we look at Psalm 32 this morning, we see how David records for us his own self-inflicted suffering. The difficulties that he was enduring because of his own choices, his own sin. So what do we do when this happens? Because we are, Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are saved sinners. There's an ongoing battle with that sin nature. Paul talks about that in Romans 7. All the things that he wants to do, he doesn't do. And the things that he doesn't want to do, he does do. It's this inward battle. In Romans 6, we are called to put to death sin. In Romans 8, we are called to mortify or to kill sin. In Ephesians 5, we are called to, Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5, to put off the old man, to put off sin, to renew our thinking and to put on Christ's likeness. So this battle with sin is ongoing in our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. I would love if the moment we trusted Christ that all sin and the power of sin was done away with in our lives. Now we have freedom from sin, meaning our nature, we are not bound to commit sin. We have the freedom to choose to honor and worship God and to live for Him. But that battle is still there with that sin nature. We want to follow the desires of the flesh. So what do we do when this happens in this battle? When we give in to sin. When we choose sin and we are suffering the consequences. The big idea from Psalm 32 is this. Is that humble repentance before the Lord. Remedies the self-inflicted suffering of our sin. Humble repentance. Repentance. Repentance is a, is a turning, right? It, it's a change of mind. It's a you're walking one way and you turn around and walk the other. Humble repentance, humble returning before the Lord. And this remedies the self inflicted suffering of our sin. This does not remove all consequences of our sinful choices or our sinful actions, but it remedies the suffering that we have before the Lord because of our sin and the weight and the conviction that is on us. So as you turn to Psalm 32 here, David writes this Psalm. David was a man after God's own heart, it says uh, in First and Second Samuel, and we see evidence of that. David was a man who sought to honor and please the Lord. David was a man who was the Lord's anointed and Saul came to kill David and David was hiding and could have killed Saul, but yet he didn't. David was this righteous man. David was the man that God gave this kingdom to that would last forever. But you, do you know what David also did? He committed adultery. He lied. He murdered. All these heinous sins in our own minds this man after god's own heart committed (laughs) but yet we see how he is still the lord's chosen person in the sense that the blessing that the lord has given him to have one sitting on a throne has not been removed why is that because we see how david repeatedly came back to the lord and confessed his sin psalm 32 here Uh, We don't know the exact circumstances. Some people say it is following David's sin with Bathsheba. We know that Psalm 51 speaks to that directly. We're not necessarily sure on this. It could be, or it could just be another uh, general account of sin in the life of David. But David's writing this from experience. He is one who has made poor choices. But here we're going to look at how this humble repentance before the Lord remedies the self-inflicted suffering of our sin. And we see how it's worked out here in our lives. So let's look here at our first point, which is this. We have joy when we are right with the Lord. We have joy when we are right with the Lord. Psalm 32 is a psalm, and psalms are poetry. And I'm sure many of you read poetry all the time, right? Roses are red, violets are blue. I don't know, there's... All the all the poems I know are like somewhat kind of insults, so I'm I don't know how to finish that, but this is this is a poem, and one of the uh, the structures of the psalms that is used repeated is that of a chiasm, and maybe you've heard this term before, but if you think of an arrow pointing out this way or, or you know a design that way, so you have this chiasm, so it goes out and in. This is how the psalm is designed. In the very middle of the psalm is the point of that arrow. And that's kind of the main idea. And on either side of that main point are parallel ideas uh, that match. So as you look at Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2 mirror verses 10 and 11. Verses 3 and 4 mirror verses 8 and 9. And then you have the center of the chiasm, which is verses five through seven. So how are we going to eat this psalm this morning? We're going to work on the edges and work our way in, okay? And that's the way our, our points will flow this morning. So the psalm builds to this middle point and then descends from there. And so that's how the structure is. So looking at the joy that we have when we are right at the Lord, it's this verses one and two and verses 10 and 11. So David writes this, and he says this, "'Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven,' whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. And then in verse 10 and 11, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So in these two uh, groups of verses, we see how the one is blessed. The blessed man. Hopefully your mind goes to Psalm 1, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of the scoffers. And you see the contrast between the blessed righteous man and the wicked man. Blessed is the one who is forgiven, whose sin is covered, who the Lord counts no iniquity. And in verses 10 and 11, the sorrows of the wicked are many, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord, that blessed man. So David here is laying out for us this truth that's found in Psalm 1, but is also reflected here in the battle with sin. The one whose sin is forgiven, the one whose sin is covered, is that blessed man, that righteous man, where the wicked has many sorrows, is the opposite of blessed, is full of despair and distraught. And why is the man blessed? Why is he happy? Because his transgressions are forgiven. That term transgression is one of the uh, phrases used for sin. And that term forgiven there (coughs) uh, describes the idea of, of bearing away. It's from Isaiah 53, when Jesus, the suffering servant, bears our guilt, bears our sin, it's the same word. We are blessed because our Transgression has been bared away. It's been carried away. It's been laid on someone else. And secondly, our sin is covered. That term covered there is the idea of atoned for, of blood being poured out. This is used throughout the sacrificial system, whose sin is covered. Our sin is is blotted out. It's covered. And then in verse 2, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. David is using all these biblical images uh, that the nation would be aware of. The idea of bearing our sin, of sacrifice covering sin, and here declaring or counts no iniquity. This is the same phrase that's used in Genesis 15 by Moses when he's recounting Abraham's interaction with God. Genesis 15, what did the Lord do? He counted unto or credited unto Abraham righteousness because of his faith. That's repeated in Romans 4. That Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Here, the Lord does not credit our iniquity against us. He declares us righteous and in whose spirit there is no deceit, there is no hiding of our sin. We aren't seeking to to cover things up in the way that we are trying to hide it from the Lord. David here is describing one who has experienced the deliverance, the salvation of Yahweh. His His sin has been carried away by Jesus. His sin has been covered by the sacrifice of Christ His sin has not been credited to him as iniquity, but rather the righteousness of Christ through faith has been credited to him. And that man does not seek to hide before the Lord. In verses 10 and 11, he continues this idea of there is joy when we are right with the Lord. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Have you ever met just a miserable person? They are out there. They are out there. And you could probably look at their life and see some of the reasons why they may be miserable, but some of the things you you may not see. The sorrows of the wicked are many, many. We have sorrows as believers, but I believe the ultimate sorrows that the wicked have are greater and deeper than we have as believers for we know the hope that we have in Christ. Because... The steadfast love of the Lord surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. That steadfast love is the, the chesed love, that covenant-keeping love, that, that love that says, I love you no matter what. And it surrounds us. And therefore we are glad, we rejoice, the righteous, it says here in verse 11, and shout for joy. We have joy, we rejoice, we are glad, we can sing because we have Forgiveness, Even though we sin and we have forgiveness of our sin, we understand the righteousness we have from God in Christ and we can rejoice. So as we think of our self-inflicted suffering, we see the consequences of sin does not bring joy. Whereas when we are right with the Lord, there is joy. There is blessedness. that's not always our lives right look at verses 3 and 4 verses 8 and 9 we have joy when we are right with the Lord but we have sickness the second point here and stupidity when we hide our sin joy is found in being right with God and this is sucked away when we hide our sin sin brings about suffering not all suffering is because of sin but sin brings suffering Not necessarily right away, right? Sin is pleasurable for a season. Sin may endure for a while and no one may know, but eventually over time, sin brings suffering. James says, sin when it is full grown brings forth death. Why do we have warrings amongst ourselves? Because of our own passions, our own sin. We don't get what we want. And sin does not lead to peace and prosperity and happiness and joy. It leads to warring. And attitudes and disagreements in James, it says. Here, David says this, For when I kept silent, meaning before the Lord, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. When David kept silent, you think, well, Was he just silent before the Lord? We know in verse 5 then, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. So he kept silent about his sin. Most people connect this idea with the end of verse 2, with the idea that there is no deceit. David was trying to deceive the Lord and hide his sin. God is undefeated in games of hide and seek. You cannot hide anything from the Lord. He knows exactly everything. Yet, When we keep silent about our sin before the Lord, we don't confess our sin, we don't recognize it, when we seek to harbor it and say, no, this is my little thing over here. It's mine. I want it. I want to have this attitude or this action or this indulgence my way. Lord, you don't need to know about it. Just keep moving on. Perhaps somebody else in your life. No, this is my little thing here. What was the result? He says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. My bones wasted away. He says his strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. We're, we're aware of what a drought does, right? When rain hasn't been around for several weeks and the heat is bearing down and it, it dries up, it's amazing how fast the ground can become parched and plants can wither. Uh, Ezra has a plant in his room and uh, it, it's, his, it's his friend. It's uh, sitting in his room, but sometimes his friend uh, forgets to be watered. <laughs> and I walk into the room, and that, that poor plant is, is, if plants could scream, it would be screaming, Help me! Water! <laughs> so we give it water, all of a sudden the next day it perks back up, and it's great. Our souls are like that when we seek to hide our sin. We become dry and parched. And we try to continue on, but we start to wither and fade. The Lord's hand is heavy upon us. It's this weight. How often has sin been described as a weight that's bearing down on us? Time after time, you're just tired of carrying it. The bones wasted away. It's this idea of infirmity and weakness. Now, whether this is physical, actual, a physical display of suffering, it could be. The end of James, James recounts that there are some among you who are sick because of sin. And there are cases and instances when there have been unexplained suffering physically in people and they get right with God by confessing sin or with someone else and then miraculously you see their health and strength come back. Because of sin, there is a physical response of the body to the weight of sin that we are being convicted with, that we are not confessing and getting right with God. That's not the case in every circumstance. So, so don't think, oh man, I got a broken arm. Did I sin? You know, Or I, I'm, I'm going through this, is it sin? It's a good question to ask, but don't automatically assume. I think the bigger emphasis here is the inward soul health of David. His groaning. He is sapped by the heat of summer. His hand was heavy upon him. David had sickness because of his sin. He was convicted. He was worn down. And we see also in verses 8 and 11, or excuse me, 8 and 9, how this idea is also continued where we have sickness because of sin. And for lack of a better phrase, we have stupidity because of sin. David uses an illustration here, and he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. He's speaking as one with experience. He's saying, listen to me as one who has endured this, who has made these foolish choices. Be warned so you don't have to endure the same. He says, because you are like a horse or a mule, without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or will not stay near you. Their sin caused them to wander. Our sin nature does not lead us to God. Our sin nature leads us to sin. My youth leader used to say this to us often as teenage boys, sin makes you stupid. And it's a true statement. Sin does not lead to insight or truth or understanding or wisdom, but rather foolishness. An ignorance, an idiocy. <laughs> we are like an animal that just wanders away, that would wander into harm. Right? David says, sin causes us to wander from the Lord. He says, listen to instruction. Listen to what I'm teaching you, because if you don't, understand that your sin will lead you away like an animal that is dumb wandering into a perilous location. You need to be bridled. You need to be, have a bit in your mouth to be controlled. We hide our sin because we think we can deceive God or go our own way, but that produces sickness and stupidity. We suffer because of our own sin and foolishness. There is no one to blame except ourselves. It's self-inflicted suffering. Pride is the enemy. Humility is needed. And that leads us to our last point here. Which is the central point of the psalm, right? We've Taking our bites on the outside, now we're to the, the middle. Like the brownie that doesn't have any edge pieces, or the middle of that Pop-Tart with no crust, it's the best bite of the whole thing, right? The cinnamon roll that's in the middle, and it's just all gooey, yes. That's, this is where we're at here in the psalm, okay? Sorry to make you hungry. <laughs> we have safety when we confess our sin to God. That's, that's the middle point here. In verses 5 through 7, <coughs> David says, there is blessing, there is joy when you follow the Lord. When you are right with Him. But understand that when you're not right with Him, there is suffering and stupidity and consequences for your action. But understand that we have safety when we confess our sin to God. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David says, I will acknowledge my sin. Not that God didn't know about his sin. He says, I did not cover my iniquity. It's, David is saying, God, I'm going to tell you what I've done. I'm not going to hide it anymore. I will confess. This is important for us in our battle with sin. Confession before God. Why, if God already knows, is that important? Have you ever interacted with a child or student and you ask them a question or you're teaching them And then you say, explain it back to me. Why do you do that? Because in their explanation back to you, you can understand that they understand. If I give instruction to Ezra or to Eden to do something, okay, what are you going to do? I'm going to do this, this, and this. I ask them that so that they understand what they're supposed to do or how they're supposed to do something. When we confess our sin before God, it's saying to God, God, I understand that I have sinned against you, and I understand my sin has consequences. My sin is serious. It's saying, God, I have sinned against you. I have broken your commands, and I deserve your punishment. It's saying the same thing that God says about our sin, and that communicates to God and us that we understand The weight of our sin. David is not hiding anything. He says, I understand what I have done is wrong. I'm confessing to you, Lord, my transgressions. And look at the result. The end of verse 5. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David pours out before the Lord his sin. He says, Lord, this is what I've done. And implied in this is a guilt and a plea for mercy and forgiveness. And he receives it. Verse 6, David acknowledges this and therefore, he says, this is what we are to do. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. David says that everyone who is godly, who is a follower of the Lord, who is a man or person after the Lord's heart will do this. They will offer a prayer at a time when he may be found, meaning before it's too late. And then he uses this illustration of a rush of great waters and a hiding place and a, somebody who preserves him from trouble. David here is implying a couple things. In the ancient Near East and all these cultures, there was this idea that the sea was full of chaos and unknown. And that To go from chaos and unknown would be to go to a place of safety or security, which is up the mountain, the hill of the Lord. So you see this imagery of the chaos of the waters below and ascending to a place of refuge and security. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Going to Mount Zion. You see this all throughout the Old Testament. Drawing near to God means going up, up the hill to safety and refuge from the chaos of the waters. And most commentators believe that that has its source in what? The chaos of waters. The flood. The flood. And the flood was judgment because of sin. And there was one way of deliverance from the flood, and that was through the ark, right? Noah preached, and he preached, and he preached for probably 100, not quite 100 years, but a long time. There's one door onto the ark, one way of deliverance, of refuge, of safety. And that was for a given time, and then judgment came through the waters. What David is doing here, he says, those who know who God is, who want to trust and follow him, the godly, find their deliverance in him while there is still time. He's implying here that judgment is coming on those who are sinful. So you better get right with God now. (laughs) Find that deliverance at a time, verse six, when you may be found. And when you find your safety and security in the Lord, the rush of waters of of judgment will not reach him. He says in verse seven, the Lord is a hiding place. The Lord preserves him from trouble. The Lord surrounds me with shouts of deliverance. We have safety when we confess our sin to God. In our sin nature and in our human thinking, we fear that when we confess our sin to God, God's going to be like, "I know it. That's it. No more grace, no more mercy." But what do we find when we confess our sin to God? We find forgiveness. We find safety, security, refuge. Grace and forgiveness. We for- we confess our sin to a holy God and what do we find? Instead of punishment, we receive pardon. We can be honest with God and with each other if we truly believe in grace. We can be honest with God and with each other if we truly believe in grace. David does this. Those who are godly come to the Lord. They pray and confess and they are found by God in time of of chaos and they are delivered. They are safe. David clearly lays out for this, this pattern for sinners. Acknowledge your sin to God. Find forgiveness and deliverance from the self-inflicted suffering of sin. And there is joy. There is peace. There is safety. There is security. Ultimately, we have all of this through Christ. Jesus is the one who bears our sins. Jesus is the one through his blood covers our iniquity. Jesus is the one whose righteousness is credited to us. Christ is that one that we need to find. And if you have found Christ as your savior and you have that relationship with him, nothing can take you away, right? Romans 8, what can separate you from the love of God in Christ? Nothing. But yet that relationship with God can be be strained because of sin. And sin still has its effects in our lives, consequences. And David here is giving us a pattern of confession, of acknowledging our sin, of coming to God, of asking for forgiveness, and finding it in Him. Sin is serious. Sin has consequences. But humble repentance, humble turning and acknowledging of our sin before the Lord leads to joy, to peace, to a right relationship and fellowship with Him. As we close, just want to read one quote for, for, for you. And it's from our book that we've been going through uh, in our care group, some of our care groups from the book, Caring for One Another. And in the Lord's Sovereignty, uh, the chapter that we're, at least our group is going to be discussing tonight is on sin and how we encourage others in our battle with sin. And this is what the author says. He says this, The Lord's forgiveness might seem too good to be true. Our instinct is, after confession, to go into exile and reform ourselves so we will be acceptable to our father. But keep the story of the prodigal son in mind. Our father is simply inclined to forgive. This distinguishes him from all invented gods and from all other humanity. He is eager to forgive at the slightest. Hint that we acknowledge our sin and our guilt, and he forgives. Satan's lie is this, is that he suggests that God is like a mere human and his grace and love are restricted and stingy. May we never be fooled by such lies. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against the Lord whom the Lord counts no iniquity. May we acknowledge our sin before him May we confess our transgressions and may we receive the forgiveness that is already ours in Jesus Christ so that we can be glad and rejoice and shout for joy those who are upright in heart. Father, thank you for the reminder and the challenge of sin in our own lives. Lord, it's an ongoing battle. Lord, I struggle daily. We all do. Lord, help us to keep short accounts of sin against you. Lord, I pray that we would be quick to encourage others to forgiveness or to confession. May we be people marked by grace and mercy, understanding that our sin has consequences, but yet through humble repentance, we can be made right with you. And Lord, we can enjoy that right relationship. Lord, we pray for all this in your son's name. Amen.